outwork those things. So persecution happened a lot in chapter 8. Um, Philip the deacon, remember Philip the guy who's just the one serving chairs? He goes out and he goes onto the mission field, goes into Samaria where no one wanted to go. Do you guys remember that from last week? And uh, preached the gospel. They sent in the bigwigs, the disciples. And um, then they met a sorcerer. Anyone remember the sorcerer's name? Simon the sorcerer, and uh, it, was, it was a good time. And then Philip, uh, he meets a guy from, does anyone remember what country he's from? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And what happens? God, the Holy Spirit, directs him uh, into a conversation with the Ethiopian on the road, and uh, he leads him to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, some amazing work. And then what happens? He gets, he gets baptized, which is awesome. Hey, so that's a quick recap of chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles or if you've got your um, Bible app, uh, go to Acts chapter 9. If you have it, I'm using the NIV. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about Bible translations today as well. Okay. Hey, so if you've got, everyone got one of these? Or at least sharing between two people? Cool. Does anyone not have one? I don't know if we can do anything about it if we don't. No, good. Okay. Hey, so... Um, does anyone remember where Saul was from? Uh, if you don't know, you can jump ahead to verse 11. Uh, so 9 verse 11. He is from Tarsus. T-A-R-S-U-S. If you're the sort of person that doesn't like to fill out things, you don't have to do this. I just This is just here for those that find that helpful. All right, let's kick off chapter 9. This is a cool chapter. Something pretty phenomenal happens in this chapter if you're unaware of it. Meanwhile, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's a good way to start a chapter. Murderous threats. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That's pretty hardcore. You know, there's been a lot of talk over a recent couple of years about persecution um, in the Western world, and I don't want to get into details, and I wouldn't even say that there people have or haven't been persecuted. What I do think we should take a moment to reflect on is what New Testament biblical persecution looked like. Imagine you're in your home, you're in your household, and your spouse was seen in the marketplace talking to one of those followers of Jesus. It's called the way at this point. Does anyone know why it's called the way? Well, it's in uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's quite a cool thing that they, were called, they weren't called followers of Christ or Christians yet, but they were called, they, it was the way is what they called themselves or were called. But imagine you're in bed, maybe a family member or a spouse, suddenly the door kicks in and temple police, temple guards turn up with the high priest's you know, authority and say, hey, we believe that you are a part of the way. Your spouse, you were seen talking to other people who we know who are part of that. And this cult, this sect, you know, we need to stamp this out. You're going to go, you're going to get imprisoned. You're coming all the way back to Jerusalem. It's 160 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. And you're put in chains and you are taken away in the middle of the night. That, 
That's a persecution that perhaps here in New Zealand that we haven't seen. But the faith, the way, continued to grow. Often, persecution brings resolution, a resolve. So it's pretty hardcore. Why did Saul feel the need to do this? He was, he later says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the greatest of Hebrews. You know, it's easy for us to tar Saul and say he was the most malicious, evil, disgusting person before he got saved. And look, let's be clear, he was dragging people out of homes and splitting up families and being present, at least we know for sure, for people getting killed and martyred for their faith. Okay, let's be clear. So he's not squeaky clean. But it's always interesting to ask this question. What's the motivation? He at least is motivated by the fact that he wants to keep Judaism pure, right? None of this Messiah business. We don't think, this, we don't think that guy Jesus, you know, several months ago or even a year ago, however long it was, we don't think he was the Messiah because he doesn't fit what we were expecting. But it's interesting to ask yourself the question, what's the motivation? His motivation in some weird warped way was he was trying to keep his faith pure. He was trying to do what he thought at the time God wanted him to do. And here's something, a little thought or a tip for the day. When someone is being a bit of an egg, when someone is doing something really dumb, when someone thinks that it's this and they're maybe even persecuting Christians, just be aware they're deceived. Remember who they are, that they are a child of God and that God does actually love them. And we are going to read that, guess what? Even Saul is loved by God. Might get kicked over by God in a minute, but that's okay. (laughs) Do you hear what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, yes, people can do dumb stuff, but we are called to love them and believe that God has a plan and a purpose for them. Maybe that someone actually is in your family and making it very hard to be a Christian or a follower. All right, let's carry on. Uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 3, as they neared Damascus on his journey, journey suddenly, everybody say suddenly. suddenly, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you percute? Ah, see, I was doing so good with my voice, and then I went percute. Can we try that again? Like, pretend you didn't hear that. All right. Imagine Jesus. He's speaking in a Kiwi accent now. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Interesting. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Read that again. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, literally, was Saul persecuting Jesus himself right there and then? No. But I love this picture of intimacy, that we are Jesus' people. We are Christ's people and Christ's followers. So he says, you are persecuting me when you are persecuting my followers. Jesus and we, we, Christ is called to live and dwell in us. And even Jesus is saying, hey, you know, you picked on Jan, that's picking on me. You picked on Andrew, that's picking on me. You picked on Clive, that's picking on me. I just love that picture. 
It is I. Why do you persecute me? Suddenly. Remember, uh, Saul is killing Christians, busting down doors, smashing through things, splitting up families. But suddenly, God does something. Suddenly. Do you know that lives can change in a suddenly? That years of prayer can be answered in a suddenly? That hopelessness can turn to hope in a suddenly? That miracles and healing can come in a suddenly? It is not too far gone that God cannot get you. In a moment, God can arrest someone, grab onto someone. Anyone here got a testimony like me that they were living one way and then Jesus had a suddenly moment with you? You met Jesus and there was a suddenly? It's not better or different or worse than another testimony, but that suddenly moment. Anyone here got a person in their life that needs a suddenly? You know, Saul arrests and takes hold of Christians. He seizes them, right? In Philippians 3, uh, Saul, well, now Paul in Philippians 3, he, re- he refers back to this uh, episode. And he used the word laid hold. Jesus laid hold of me. And in the Greek, that word is kata lambano, which means to arrest or to seize. What was Saul doing? Arresting and seizing. Jesus comes and he kata lambados him. He arrests him and seizes him, grabs him for a moment, and says, Mate, I've got you. Guess what? I'm real. Now I've got a job for you. I believe that Paul's conversion reminds us that God can take hold of us in many different ways. You know, we know for a fact that awesome sermon of Stephen, that I think it was in chapter 5 and 6, that great sermon that talked all about the whole story of the Hebrew faith, right? Who was there? Saul. Did he get saved there? No. Some people will meet Jesus through great teaching. Saul didn't this time. Some people will meet Jesus through relationship. And sometimes, on occasion, Jesus is going to grab you by the scruff of the neck. And this is one of those moments. I was a scruff of the neck conversion. Anyone remember Lucky Takoha's story? It was a scruffy of the neck and up against the wall conversion, that one. (laughs) You know, I believe um, in there it says, sometimes God... Sometimes God knocks on the door, right? Revelations 3.20, behold, I knock on the door. A little gentle knock. I need something to knock on. Like this. I had to work on, anyone else got a bad knock like me? I was told when I used to knock on people's doors, I sounded like a cop. I was like, boom, 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 boom. It's the same with beeping. I still cannot hoot the horn the appropriate way. If you see me and I'm like, oh, look, there's that person I love. And everyone's, oh. I'm like, still can't get it. But anyway, he beholds and he knocks gently, right? 
For some of us, he knocks gently, and that's cool. But sometimes, God needs to knock us down. Sometimes God needs to knock our pride down. Sometimes we are prideful creatures. And how many people know that when God knocks you down, he's not going to leave you down, but he's going to bring you back a peg or two, grow you, develop you through that process. Anyone here being knocked down by God on occasion? It's a hard thing to talk about as Christians, but actually it's a really strong part of our faith. And it's very developmental. All right, let's move on. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. I believe that Saul was fighting conversion at this point. So he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. But I believe something started in his heart with Stephen. I really do. You know, I'm reminded um, years ago when Luca, our middle, middle child, he was... He was walking, so maybe 16 months old. And we went to this dinner, uh, and Isaac would have been four. And um, we went to this dinner in the city, and for some reason I think I was on the phone, and I was walking down the block, and Hannah was inside the restaurant. And I'm walking back towards the restaurant on the phone. It's kind of late at night. It's a busy road. And then suddenly I see a Luca darting from the restaurant, and it's probably from about here to the sound desk away. And he's, he's darting from the restaurant across the footpath onto the busy road. And there's cars everywhere. And I remember going, oh, Luca! And knowing, not knowing, knowing immediately that I couldn't get from here to there quick enough. And then out of the blue comes Isaac with his little cape on. Comes running behind his brother. And what does he do? shoves him as hard as he can. So he flies against the ground, upside down, gravel in the face, tears everything, and he rolls to the stop, and Isaac's got him. And I run over there, and Isaac's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, mate, that was awesome. You could have punched him in the head. I wouldn't have minded. Because what he was doing was saving his little brother the best way he could. He didn't have all of the tools that he needed. He just could shove his brother over because he knew if he fell over, he wasn't going to go on the road. And he was a bit nervous. That's kind of what's happening to Saul here. He's like, hey, I'm grabbing you. And I'm, so if you don't know, he's blinded. We're going to continue reading. But I was reminded of that story. That sometimes God needs to give us a good shove. Why do you persecute me? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So there's a fighting of uh, conversion there. Um, in Acts, so we're in Acts 9, but in Acts 26, um, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he repeats the same story from Paul's perspective. So Paul talks about the story again in Acts 26. And in Acts 26, uh, verse, is it 14? Let me just check. Yeah, 26 verse 14, he says this. We all fell on the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, his own language. How many people know that often God will speak to you the way that you speak, in a way that you understand? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You can see a little picture there. That is a goad. It is an instrument used to direct, it is an instrument used to direct cattle. 
Here's one here to a certain level. It's not a lightsaber, I'm sorry. Um, can I have a volunteer? No, I won't do that to you. <laughs> but this is used by farmers and stockies to move cattle, right? And uh, a goad was used for that purpose as well. It was for direction and correction. Hey, don't go that way. Hey, this way. Am I doing it right? Never used one before. This core's like, nah, mate, that's not right. I, was getting, I wanted an electric one. Do you have an electric one, core? Ah, oh, mate, we should have bought it in. We could have used it on you. I mean, someone else. <laughs> right? And so when you kick against the goad, if you have a look at that picture, it's got a nice little sharp hook on it. And it would often cut the person. So what Paul is saying there, that Jesus said to him, when you push against what I'm trying to do, you're going to hurt yourself. Because this is going to happen. So go with the flow, bro. I just came up with that then. That's in the uh, Dre version. Go with the flow, bro. So God, a, a goad gets the point across, if you haven't already written that. How many people know that often when you resist God, there can be a season of suffering? It's not that God does the, the thing that causes you to suffer, but he's trying to take you out of something. And if you keep pushing against it, there can be a, a sense of real struggle. Has anyone been that? God's been talking to you about something and you've been going the other way and it feels like a real struggle. Just me. Great. Thank you. You know, there are two goads pointing Saul in a direction. One, I believe, is the life of Christ. It's on your notes. And then the next one is the death of Stephen. I honestly believe there was something in the death of Stephen where he saw Stephen say, you're killing me right now with giant rocks to the head. But what does Stephen say? Basically, he says, Father, forgive them, like Jesus, for they know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them. You think that would have been impactful if you were standing there watching someone getting killed and he looked at you in the eye and he said, it's okay, you don't know what you're doing. God will forgive you. It's pretty powerful. I imagine that, in my own opinion, I imagine Saul over several months that just was in him. So in that one suddenly, there's two things that Saul suddenly realizes. One, Jesus is not dead. And number two, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because he knows that Jesus was killed. He's heard the 500 testimonies that Jesus was rose, risen again after three days and then ascended to heaven. He's heard all of that. But here is Jesus massively impacting him. Do you think that Jesus, sorry, do you think that Saul saw a vision of Jesus? Or do you think he saw Jesus in his full body. I tend to believe, this is just my opinion, which I could be wrong when I say my opinion, but my opinion is that Jesus was in full transfigured body. He was physically there, and the full power and radiation of his glory was blocking out the other travelers from seeing his face through the light, just like with Moses and others. And in Acts twenty six seventeen, we read, uh, this is Paul's account to King Agrippa, um, he said that Jesus said to him, Now stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint a servant as a witness that you have seen me. I believe he saw him. He said he appeared to me. I think Jesus was there. Um, anyone here reading from a New King James? 
It's totally fine if you are. Anyone here from a New King James? When you read verse 5 and 6, you might notice a, little, a few differences. And I've actually put them in your study guide here if you want to have a look. Have a look at the page there where it says um, NIV verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. But in the New King James Version, for those that don't know, there are different translations of the Bible done by different groups of people at different times in, in history. The New King James Version of the exact same scripture does this, and I've highlighted it in yellow for you. And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting, which was the same as NIV. Then is this new line. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Verse 6, so with trembling and astonished, and, and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then it carries on. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Essentially what's happening here, I just wanted to take a moment. If you ever see different versions, often you've got to ask yourself the question, what's happening? What's going on? And like I said, you know that goads thing? We saw that in verse 26, right? So the authors of the New King James Version, what they've done is they've taken a portion of what Saul said in Acts 26 and in Acts 22, and they've brought it into Acts chapter 9. And because they've said, like, in Acts 26 and Acts 22, he's talking about this very thing, but he doesn't mention it here. And so what some scholars have done is they've taken it and they've put it there. So has anyone ever come across that? You're looking at different versions and you go, why is that there and why is this not there? There's often a reason behind it. So where do they come from? Um, They come from Scripture, but they're just different places. So if you see down there, it says, firstly, they are an accumulation of different Scriptures. So they are an accumulation of different Scriptures uh, from the New King James Version. And they come from Acts 26.14. Acts 26.14, if you're writing it down. So they, firstly, they are an accumulation of different scriptures. They come from Acts 26.14 and Acts 22.10. There you go. There's some Bible nerdery for you. <laughs> All right, let's carry on. The men traveling with Saul, verse 7, stood there speechless, They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. How many people know that sometimes you hear the same thing, but in your spirit you see something different? That's what happened to Saul. He saw, he heard Jesus. The other guy saw the light, but there was something else. So you go with your own conviction. Sometimes others hear, but they do not see. Verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. It's pretty cool. Um, straight uh, Street still exists uh, in Damascus. Uh, But here's a photo in 1880, and yeah, it's pretty cool. I love what um, the Lord speaks to Ananias here. Do you think Ananias knew (laughs) who Saul was? 100%. He was in his town, or coming to his town. They definitely knew he was coming. And he says, Lord, answered Ananias, one moment please, (laughs) he says, 
I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Sometimes God uses what brings us fear to build us up in faith. Sometimes God uses what we fear to bring us up in faith, to grow our faith. God is bigger than any fear in your life. Sometimes you need to face it, and sometimes on the other side of facing that fear, there's a faith step. There's a growing. But then the Lord said to Ananias in verse 15, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. Uh, sorry, in their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show you him. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I've got a question here. When you think of an instrument, God is saying, "Hey, look, here's an instrument here. I've got some pictures of instruments, and I've asked the question in and of itself, without having to do anything. What does what does an instrument need to do?" It's a bit of a trick question. All it's got to do is be fit for purpose. The maker's hands use it. A drum doesn't have to do anything. As long as it's drum and it's sound, the drummer will drum. A hammer, the hammer does, itself does not actually have to do anything as an instrument. It's the wielder of the hammer, right? The trumpet. It's the person, it's the breath of the user through the trumpet that makes the sound. It's the eyeglass. It doesn't have to do anything. What must an instrument do in and of itself? Nothing, except be fit for purpose. It's the user that does the rest. You are an instrument of God. All you need to do is to make sure that you have a tight, close relationship with Jesus You don't have to worry about the rest. God will be the one that blows into the instrument that is your life. God will use you like a hammer. Does anyone find that quite freeing? That you've just got to be the thing that God has created you to be, and he's going to move through you? I love that. I think that's powerful. I find that helpful. It takes the onus off me. All right. Let's carry on. Verse 17, then Ananias straight away went to the house and entered it. How do you think Ananias would have been feeling at this point? A little nervous, interested to see what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to get his head taken off. He did feel like the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He did feel like God spoke to him. So let's see what happens. And he, uh, he, uh, he went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. It's pretty brave of Ananias. (laughs) Often miracles, miracles are often on the other side of obedience. Did you know that? As you're obedient to God, often crazy, miraculous God things happen, right? 
Ananias was obedient. He went straight up to the door and knocked and thought, this might be the last door I ever knock on, but I'm going to do it. And he was obedient and he was an instrument, Ananias, for the gospel to go into all of Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth through the work of Paul the Apostle. How cool was that? I'm pretty sure a couple of years later, Ananias would have been like, pretty chuffed about that. Glad I listened. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Um, I was doing a little bit of research, and not that it particularly matters. It could have been a completely supernatural thing. But uh, perhaps there's a physical explanation. So if we see in Acts 26, verse 13, it says, this is, G, uh, this is Saul, uh, Paul now, talking to King Agrippa, and he was retelling the story. He says, uh, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and all my companions. There's this condition. Do you know you can get sunburnt corneas? In extreme situations, with extre- it's like you know, when you can go snow blind, if you're looking at the snow too long. But in extreme situations, if you get enough radiation on your cornea, they can actually peel. They can actually peel like sunburn on your skin. It's called photo, photokeratis. It, in extreme cases, can cause a peeling of tissue from the cornea. And they can often peel like a scale. Um, so, you know, that could have just been some sort of supernatural thing or going. Or he was exposed to so much radiation because it was brighter than the sun. So I imagine it wouldn't have taken long. And his eyes went white and then uh, God restored it, which I think is cool. How long after following Jesus did Saul get baptized in verse 19? Three days or at least three days. And then I've snuck in a question here. When is the next Cornerstone baptism service? You guys are like, I see what you did there. I see. It's the 17th of July. You've got to write that in now because it's in your little book. Shall we carry on? Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized, and taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Whew. Just takes one suddenly, people. Who's hoping and praying for a suddenly for someone? All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Christ. What we see here that Saul was the chief opponent. And after a suddenly, he became the chief proponent of the gospel. Saul was the chief opponent, but after one suddenly with Jesus, he became the biggest proponent of the gospel. If you've got your Bibles right now, after the book of Acts, for the most part, Paul, who is now Saul at this stage, wrote it. Give or take. He had a, there's, you cannot underestimate 
the massive impact that Paul had on the world through Christ. What was it? It was one suddenly. Proving that Jesus is Christ. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. I imagine maybe some of the Jews that he took with him from Jerusalem as well, going, uh, you did not read the, the mission correctly, Saul. You're a little confused. Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, that would have been a bit of a surprise for all the disciples. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. That reminds me a little bit of Lucky's story. Started coming to churches and they were like, uh, <laughs> what? But they were all afraid of him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And now in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the uh, Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him too. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to uh, Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, where he was from. I've got on our notes here, true, truth expressed through power is truth proven. There's a lot through the Bible that talks about how the power of the Holy Spirit came. We know there's a lot of examples of miracles happening in the Bible and people choosing not to believe them. We understand that. But by far and large, you'll see miracles were done by the disciples. Miracles were done by Jesus and all those who saw believed. What does Christianity look like? What does New Zealand look like? What does Selwyn look like if we as Christians or followers of Jesus or of the way start to move in a biblical power? of truth, expressing truth and power. It's hard to deny it. Some will, but it's hard to deny it. I don't want to move in the power of the Holy Spirit so people think I'm awesome. I want to move in the power of the Holy Spirit so we start to see people grow and develop and come to faith in Jesus. Check your motivation, but ask for God to move powerfully. It takes one suddenly. I love um, in verse 31, it's a bit of an indication about how powerful Saul really was. Then the church, this is after Saul was there, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Not living in fear of Saul any longer, but living in the fear of the Lord. He was a powerful dude. He was a powerful man. God used him in a suddenly to do things much greater, much more powerfully, much more uh, influence in the coming scriptures. All right. Aeneas and Dorcas. <laughs> 32. As Peter traveled, we're going to just step away from Paul for a second. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. 
there he found a, a, a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, tidy up your mat immediately. Uh, Aeneas got up and all those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord because powerfully they had seen God, God's truth represented. Power, you cannot deny it. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which was then translated to Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About the time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room, Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the windows stood around him, widows stood, stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothes that Dorcas had made um, while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented to presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. I want you to take a minute and answer that question down the bottom of your guide, or have a think about it. What does Paul's conversion tell us about the hope for our friends, our loved ones, even for you? Maybe you're sitting here today going, I'm too far gone. Well, unless you've been killing people because they're a Christian, you haven't sent the benchmark. As the worship team comes up, can we, um, can we just take a moment, close your eyes, have a think about that. What does this mean? Can we, um, can we stand to our feet, please?